Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news and talk show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 246. We're recording on Thursday, February 1st. I'm Jeff O'Neill. I'm here with Rebecca Shinsky. We're coming to you from bookriot.com. You know, I Hello. I, I, th- I think it was an internet thing. I never heard of like the rabbit. You're supposed to say rabbit rabbit on the first of the month for good luck. I guess that's what it is. is I have heard is? of this thing. I think it predates the internet, but I don't know the origins of no, it. No, no. I didn't hear about it till the internet. In my oh, okay. Jeff post-internet. There's the, I don't care if it existed before the internet for me. That's where I heard about it. Your, uh, your running <laughs> buddy over there, Liberty, she does it every month on Twitter. Or something. She does. But you didn't yeah, know this she, growing I, up either? This rabbit rabbit business? No, I had never heard of it. I think I actually didn't know of it until I, probably until I saw Liberty doing it on Twitter yeah. a few years ago. And I do remember at one point I Googled like, what is the source of doing this? But right. that information flew like in my eyeballs and then right out of them. Uh, so I... I don't know. But yeah, it's a thing. I guess rabbit rabbit because we're recording on the first today. Yes, that's what and I was making. We don't often record yeah, on the first. So that's well, true. And statistically, we do, you know, sometimes out of seven days, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. But, uh, someone but, can do that math if you're really right. bored today. It was definitely an internet thing this year about how long January is. Like, mm. I don't remember the internet being obsessed with the fact that January is long or feels long before. But I don't know. I had a nice. I had a nice January, but I did see the memes that were like, today literally feels like January 74th. And I was like, well, yeah. welcome to the shortest welcome month to, now. Yeah, Here we are in go. February. Run through it. Uh, this is our first you can email us thing. Did you know Rabbit Rabbit growing up? Like it was a, th- a part of your world before you saw someone on the internet do it. Podcast at bookriot.com. I feel like I need one of those New York Times language heat maps, you know, like where people yeah. call it the soda versus Coke. I need that. Like, ra- do people do that? If you knew it growing up, like if you did it, did you? Oh yeah, know where why? are you from? Oh yeah, oh where yeah. are you from? And, and where are you from? Like, mm-hmm. yeah. I don't know why. I mean, rabbits are good luck. Um, I mean, it's not good luck for the rabbit that you cut its foot off, I guess. Uh, but you know, <laughs> rabbits. I don't know. Rabbits are, are lucky. It, it seems strange. So here we are. Um, welcome to February. Uh, we came through a busy news month in January. Um, kind of a lull for new book releases, mm-hmm. usually in February. But you know what? There's stuff coming out. I'm buying this book. I'm I'm buying it. We got a lot of hype. They they bought some stuff with the advertising with us. So I you know all caveats and whatever apply. But it's the Hazelwoods our first sponsor today by Melissa Albert. And I've got to say a lot of the book riot folks behind the scenes. It just came out uh, yesterday or no the thirtieth. There are 31 days in January. A lot of calendar talk. That's what everyone tunes in for, I know. Let's talk about how many days are in various months for the book right <laughs> You can podcast. have Garth Brooks talk or you can have calendar yeah, talk. Take right. your pick. Yeah. We can talk about Julius Caesar being a jerk, and that's why August has 31 days. That's a whole other podcast. But The Hazelwood by Melissa Albert came out on Tuesday, and it's it's kind of – I have to say it's kind of a bit of a moment among those people around us online. So here's the deal. 17-year-old Alice and her mother have spent most of Alice's life on the road. Um always a step ahead of the bad luck biting at their heels. But when Alice's grandmother, the reclusive author of a book of pitch dark fairy tales, dies on her estate, the Hazelwood, Alice learns how bad her luck can really get. It's a debut from Melissa Albert, who runs the uh, Barnes & Noble teen blog. 
uh, and one readers have been buzzing about for months. One of 2018's most anticipated novels. Step inside the short uh, inside this story, and you may get lost in its beautiful writing as a girl searches for her mother in a land that doesn't have any rules. That may be a gateway to a land of dark fairy tales dying to get out. That's The Hazel Wood by Melissa Albert. Also has a wonderful cover. I'm buying it in print. That's beautiful. I'm going to take a look at it. So that is uh, our first sponsor. Yeah, it comes with a Liberty endorsement. They sponsored all the books this week, and Liberty was planning to use this as one of her featured picks for the week. And then we had to like, well, it's a sponsor, so pick something else. But also, you can just rave about it. So you get some Book Riot official stamp of approval. Someday we will get a stamp. I just really want a stamp. <laughs> all right. All right, let's do some follow-up. Let's do follow-up. Yeah, so we got several reminders, but I think the first one that I saw came from our friend Emily in the Book Riot Insider Slack that the Ursula K. Le Guin Wizard of Earthsea series actually was adapted. Um, and apparently the reason that we don't know is that there are no good adaptations that have lasted. But back in 2004, the Sci-Fi Channel, which was spelled S-C-I-F-I, different from S-Y-F-Y sci-fi that we have now, I think. Um, the Sci-Fi Channel aired a miniseries based on Wizard of Earthsea, and Ursula K. Le Guin wrote a piece for Slate called A Whitewashed Earthsea, How the Sci-Fi Channel Wrecked My Books. Um, and mm. she just pulls it apart that she, when they uh, sold the rights to Earthsea, the contract gave her the status of consultant, and her agency couldn't improve the clause and get more details about or get her, you know, more specific responsibilities or access to things. And so the show um, took characters that are of all races, and she writes that she's very intentionally always written about a rainbow of people that the majority of mm. folks on Earth are not white. And so it doesn't make sense that everyone in science fiction and fantasy should be white. Her color scheme, she says, was conscious and deliberate from the start. I don't see why everybody in science fiction had to be a honky named Bob or Joe or Bill. <laughs> <laughs> like or, Earth, Ursula K. Le, like she was scathing and woke before we had the term. Um, but this is a great piece that you can. I think hold. honky might be a, a bridge beyond woke. I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure exactly where. I don't know if that that falls within the purview of being woke that you use a honky. But wherever it is, she was out there. <laughs> well, she's she's rightfully real upset about this. Like the first yes, sentence of yes, the piece yes. is on Tuesday night, the sci-fi channel aired its final installment of legend of Earthsea, the mini series based loosely as it turns out on my Earthsea books. <laughs> well, uh, and can... I said in the sliders insiders, I, I knew about this bad one. I have to say, mm -hmm. I, I meant it hadn't been adapted meaningfully, right? Like the, yeah. What, faithfully. That doesn't count. Sorry. We, we're not, we're not counting that garbage. Yeah, so you can read Ursula K. Le Guin's whole piece about it. We'll put the link in the show notes. I recommend that. Um, I don't. I was going to say, you know, it's a bad adaptation when her response to the adaptation is better than the, <laughs> more entertaining and interesting than the adaptation. Also, Hell Hath No Fury, like Ursula K. Le Guin, it's uh, it, it's pretty scathing. There's really quality shade here in addition to laying out she's like so many people have contacted me being angry about what they've done to my show and you can just imagine what it would have been like if twitter had 
existed when when this adaptation happened and what she would have dealt with. And so she's saying, for readers who have been wondering why I let them change the story, you can find some answers here. Uh, But her explanation of how this happens and how different what appeared on the adaptation is from what she wrote into her books about the characters and the story and also the order in which things happen. Like apparently the series Mm. just takes scenes from her book and puts them in different orders and it makes no sense. Um, So we... We're not clear in our statements last week. The books were adapted. Yeah. They were bad. We're still waiting for a good one. Yeah, so someone get out there. Get on that. Mm-hmm. Um, IP is, uh, is, I mean, it's a series. It would be a great TV show, great movie series. Take yeah. whoever's got Amazon's got money to burn. Say, and you know, the existing sci-fi channel SYFY has done the Magicians trilogy, the Lev Grossman books. And that adaptation is actually really great. It's fun to watch. Yeah. Um, the scenery is good. It's not cheesy. Like, and the CGI is good and it's very cheeky and clever. I think you could, and the casting is diverse in a way that like the characters in the book, um, some of them are indicated as white in the book and the casting was diverse on the show regardless of that, which is great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, interesting. So there's, that's our follow-up. Uh, quite a bit of book news happened this mm-hmm. week. So, yeah, it feels on like we're like... On the retail front, on the award front. Yeah, um, we're back into the year. <laughs> yeah. I guess, well, it's. A, I don't know if this is the most interesting piece, but it's, it's at the top, is that Walmart is teaming up with Kobo to offer... Um, basically, Walmart will begin selling Kobo readers and ebooks through its website and in its stores. Um, I'm shocked that you couldn't buy ebooks through Walmart before, but Walmart and Amazon are in a giant retail war, and Kobo and Amazon. I don't know that you'd call it a war. I mean, when someone is just like crushing someone else, like in Amazon, at least in the U.S. book market, mm-hmm. Kobo is trying to make inroads there. So this makes a lot of sense. Um, that Walmart, you know, would want to have a partnership. They don't want to deal, I guess, with building their full stack. They could do their own ebook system, but it doesn't sound like they want to. And Kobo is probably giving them a pretty good deal to gain market share and get people into their readers and onto their website and you know, all, all along the watchtower. Um, but as a lot, Walmart sells a lot of physical mm-hmm. books. It'll be interesting to see if the people that buy their books at Walmart will pick up a Kobo e-reader and then buy e-books through Kobo. Yeah, you know, I have a couple questions about this. The first is, I went and checked earlier. Well, the first, the first question is not a question at all. Now I'm that guy at the, <laughs> <laughs> at the book event. But to my like, that is not a question sign is showing right thank now. Thank you. Which I, apparently is apocryphal. I saw um, that. What? Yes, it is. It is. Um, Rachel Fershleiser, like somebody texted her that we were talking about that on the show and she Instagrammed a screenshot of that conversation and was like, this is imaginary, but this is, if this is my imaginary legacy, I will hold on to it. Apparently she used to always talk about making the sign, but she never did, but I'm going to hold on to it. We're, we're still going to use that. Um, so target, sells a ton of books and they don't sell mm-hmm. ebooks. Like I was not surprised that Walmart doesn't sell ebooks yet because I don't think any of the other big just like big box mm. retailers that sell books are in digital probably because DRM is so yeah. bonkers and and complicated. My first big question though is Walmart currently does sell Kindles. So oh, does, huh. like does this mean that there if you go on to walmart.com you can buy a Kindle. So I wonder I wonder, does this mean they're going to stop selling Kindles and sell Kobo readers Um, instead? Or are they adding the Kobo readers and hoping that the availability of only Kobo eBooks will mean that you've got to buy a Kobo reader from them or, or what? Like I, 
I think this story is actually a nothing burger. Um, because, hmm. because who, like if you've, if you're shopping online that much and you're using Walmart and probably also using Amazon, that's just a guess. Um, but I'm just not sure that there are a ton of Walmart customers who want to read ebooks that don't already have a good source for them. And the Kobo ebook pricing is usually a lot higher than Amazon's or often. Right. Yeah. And Walmart's big advantage is there, there are thousands of giant physical stores mm-hmm. and you don't buy ebooks that way. Like you don't walk into a, you don't walk into a Barnes and Noble and buy a Nook book. You know, that, so whatever Walmart's short, you know, where they're really falling down to Amazon is online. Mm-hmm which this is where you can buy them. You'll be able to buy them. But like there's no, I guess there probably won't be like a Walmart app where you buy your kitty litter and stuff that also has your ebook reader built into it. So it's like not seamless. You have to go through another app and download through a different way. Um, I, I'm not sure if it's a nothing burger. I guess I was more surprised that there wasn't already some facility for people buying books through Walmart, which sells a lot of books mm-hmm. to buy ebooks. Um, you know, this is kind of like what Kobo would sell. I don't think they, maybe they still do. I don't even know would sell um, with independent bookstores. You could buy ebooks yeah. through Kobo that would benefit mm-hmm. your independent bookstore, but it's kind of the same problem. If you're going to an independent bookstore, you're not there to buy ebooks. You're doing it some other way. Well, and like Costco um, sells a ton of print books, but I don't think there's any yeah. way to purchase your ebooks through Costco. No, I, I, would, I wouldn't think so. Um, maybe they make some, you know, but if I guess if Walmart picks up a couple percentage points of Amazon's ebook, Market share, which this business insider piece that we'll link in the show notes puts at eighty three percent. I've heard as high as ninety percent mm-hmm. about guests. So we don't since we don't know numbers in publishing, people are guessing in back of the envelope and reverse engineering all the numbers. Not that it makes us crazy that this happens at all, but it's like somewhere between eighty and ninety percent. If Kobo takes a couple percentage points through Walmart, that could be meaningful mm-hmm. in a lot of different ways. Um, Kobo's bottom line, Walmart's bottom line, yeah, so even, on and so forth. You know, that's a good point. Even if it's customers, just customers who don't e-read yet, and they pick up a Kobo yeah, e-reader in a right. Walmart store, and that becomes the thing that they do, that new conversion will go to Walmart and Kobo instead of Amazon. Um, I think it's an interesting choice. Like, I haven't looked. I should, maybe. Um, I wonder how indie booksellers who have worked closely with Kobo and sort of <laughs> <laughs> taken yeah, the point. you know Kobo works with indie booksellers and that's like the partner of the little man like how do they take the notion yeah. of their partner now also being in bed with Walmart which not as serious of a competitor for book sales as Amazon is to indie bookstores but still represents that you, you know giant chain store um, taking down mom and pop businesses so I'm curious about that if you are an indie bookseller or you happen to have mm. heard anything about like whether indie booksellers care that Kobo now is also working with Walmart, I would be interested in that too. Podcast at bookriot.com. That you looked up, it was smart to look up Target. I didn't think to look at the other major chains. um, And I guess that would be the other one. But why doesn't Target sell eBooks? Like, uh, I'm sure maybe they haven't thought of it. Maybe they don't think it was, they don't want people shopping online. Like maybe they don't know the delivery. They have to deal with all the DRM and IP and all Mm -hmm. the things that you have to do to sell eBooks these days. But it does seem like, you know, eBooks are, again, the the rhetoric out there, uh, rhetoric might be strong, but the narrative out there at least is that you know print is ascendant and ebooks are you know falling away. But that's only true to a certain percent. Like we're still twenty plus percent of dollars that get spent on books 
is digital. Mm -hmm. And that's a lot to miss out if you're a Target, if you're a Walmart, um, if you're a Costco, if you're, you know, Kmart, someone like that. A lot of books get sold in those mass merchandise places. And one of the places that ebooks have taken the largest slice of the pie is in mass market paperbacks, which a lot of those books that you see in drugstores and in grocery stores and in mass market real estate are those five ninety nine, six ninety nine mass market paperbacks. Yeah. Um, so that would be a place where there might be some overlap in you know demand and functionality. But again, I think like you and I know the the thing we always want is another dedicated e reading app. <laughs> like that's the other problem. Like the thing that's nice about the Kindle or the, the Nook app or the Kobo app for that matter mm-hmm. is you can buy and it shows up there and you go through one right. sort of system. I'm going to go buy through Walmart and I'm going to sh- it's going to show up in my Kobo app. It's a co- This is a co-branded Walmart Kobo app. So it's going to be garbage. separate. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I so you got to go through other you have to have your dedicated Walmart Kobo app. Can you yes. use my regular Kobo app? Right. And right. will my Just like, great. That's great. I have right. Great. Like I have an existing Kobo account and so if I got a Kobo Walmart account would they merge or would I have to mm. use both? I I also wonder about that. I kind of think that what should have happened is that Walmart or Costco or Target should have realized about seven years ago that ebooks were going to be a thing. Like when the Kindles first really started taking off, somebody in those other big box places that's like, oh, right, we compete with Amazon for lots of business should have started developing an e-reader and ebooks. And then you can get into people. But like, I think that a lot of the folks who have become ebook people are already devoted to the platform. And you're right. Like, as we've said a million times on this show, you don't want to read through 17 different ebook apps no. and adding another one. Like I, you can imagine a Costco promotion that's like open a new Costco, get a new Costco membership in June and everyone gets a free Costco e-reader <laughs> or like 50%, yeah. 50% off the Costco e-readers to all members this month. Like they could have moved a lot of them, but I think mm. that the, I think the window on somebody competing in that way um for like the ch- for the existing chunk of e-reader business is yeah, i think that window has closed and because publishers are also like they're supporting this narrative that print is ascendant print is back yes. like it's no longer in danger print is back the sky is not falling the kids are loving print books like all of those <laughs> stories and we know that you know not to launch us into another ebook pricing rant but we know that pricing has a ton to do with that. And publishers are not supporting making readers mm-hmm. like publishers don't want readers to convert to being ebook readers. They want readers to stay. No, they don't. That's, that's true. Books. No one talks about that. Yeah. No one talks about that. Right. right. They don't so want it. There's they no, like it. there's no investment or reason on the publishing side to help make this happen. Ebook prices are not awesome. E-readers are expensive to make. DRM is just a a huge nest of complications. Subscription services for books have been hamstrung from the beginning for most of these Exactly. And so I just, I feel like this could have been a thing several years ago if they had gotten into, like if Walmart had gotten to customers who were going to be curious about ebooks, but had not yet bitten out of the Amazon, Apple, or gotten a Mm. nook. And we hear about those pretty commonly. But I think because publishing's not making it appealing to become an ebook reader now, um, ebook prices are terrible. Like, I don't think there's that many people out there just floating around, like waiting to become ebook readers who are going to be like, oh, well, I was thinking about it. And I guess I'll go to Walmart. I don't know. I mean, I don't know. You, you and I grew up in the Midwest. There are towns where the big retail store is a Walmart. You don't have an Apple store. You don't have a Best Buy. 
your e-reader might be whatever you can get at Walmart. And maybe if you, and again, maybe it's too late, but you can see a world in which, you know, um, a retiree who likes Westerns or romance novels or mysteries, whatever, mm-hmm. goes in and buys the e-reader from Walmart and buys their books through that e-reader. Again, you're not taking down the big A, but you've done something, you know, that you've gotten someone that Amazon has a harder time getting. Yeah. Because they walk into a physical store. I just think Whether Amazon... Whether there's any fish in that sea still, I have no idea. Right. I think Amazon right has fished that sea. Um, yeah. So that'll be interesting to... See. Like, I wonder if at the end of the year we're going to be talking about... You know, and this year Walmart and Kobo partnered together and no. here it was. Or if by December we'll have forgotten that this even happened. We'll, we'll forget. Speaking of things <laughs> that um, are related to this and things we won't remember happened, this is... I hope we didn't talk about this last week because I feel like we might have or mm. I just had thoughts about it. Did we talk about Google getting into audiobooks? Did we talk about that last week? Yes. Okay. Let's not do it again then. There's no reason to do it again. <laughs> You don't want to repeat. It wasn't our no. points weren't so strong that rehashing that would be entertaining for the people. Yes, no, not it wasn't okay. a terribly compelling conversation. Uh, okay, good. I was going to say that's another thing <laughs> that we're not going to remember. I agree. That's not going to be that's not going to be a big yeah. deal. I do think this next story is something that we'll be talking about at the end of the year, and not just because mm. it will happen. Uh, at the right. end of the year. Um, but it was announced just yesterday that yesterday. for the very first time, the National Book Foundation is adding, um, well, for the first time in more than two decades, the National Book Foundation is adding a new category to its annual slate of prizes. And for the first time ever, it will be giving an award for translated literature to recognize either fiction or nonfiction translated into English and published in the U.S. Um, Lisa Lucas, who's the director, uh, the executive director of the National Book Foundation, said, we are a nation of immigrants and we should never stop seeking connection and insight from the myriad cultures that consistently influence and inspire us. Um, so nice, solid reasoning there for doing this. Also, there seems to have been increased attention turned to literature and translation by the book media in the last couple of years, Mm. acknowledging that this is a part of the reading life and translation is certainly its own kind of literary achievement. So I think this will be really interesting to follow. Mm -hmm. Yeah, really interesting. Um, Probably immediately, certainly becomes the most prestigious American award for works and translation. Um, and I guess then second only then to the Man Booker International Prize. Mm-hmm. When a, uh, a year or so ago, Amanda was one of the judges for the Best Translated Book Award, something like that. Yep. Um, but yeah, so it's not this is not the only opportunity to recognize. No, but that you can't remember its book. name right. says something. <laughs> yes. And not to be harsh on whatever it's called, but that's the truth. Um, you know, there you go. So that's a thing that will be happening. If you're into mm-hmm. uh, literature in translation, you can check out. That what will gets be interesting nominated. to see. I mean, works in translation typically don't sell very well unless they're Joe Nesbo or whatever you say mm-hmm. that guy's name or Stieg Larsson. Um, you know, you're a thriller, but like this will be literary fiction, presumably. And a word like this for a title like that could do. Mm-hmm. out of scale with normal national book award winning books mm-hmm. like right. as a as a raw number increase will be probably fairly huge i would imagine mm-hmm. i think since nonfiction is on the table as well like some sort of mm. gl- global political analysis um could do well mm. it's or may, perhaps a memoir maybe that was translated into english but yeah, I would guess it's going to it will probably be fiction heavy, but I have no basis for that. I'm just guessing that most of the works in translation are fiction works. Yeah. If you know this, 
let us know what those numbers are. I would guess so too. I don't yeah. even know. Is nonfiction eligible for the man booker? Or like, are those, those are just oh, fiction categories. I think, I think those are just fiction. Yeah. Um, and the Nobel prize for literature is just literature, which let's not get into a thing about nonfiction and literature, but like, you know, that's fiction, poetry mm-hmm. plays typically. Um, so it could be, if it is open to nonfiction, I, it might be the, it might be the most prestigious award in the world for translated nonfiction. It's very possible. Um, that that will be the case. Yeah. And speaking of book prizes, this is an Mm. interesting one. Yes. So it was announced this week that there is a new book prize specifically for thrillers, and even more specifically, thrillers in which no woman is beaten, stalked, sexually exploited, raped, or murdered. It's called the Staunch Prize. Um, And the quote here from one of the founders says that as violence against women in fiction reaches a ridiculous high, the Staunch Book Prize invites thriller writers to keep us on the edge of our seats without resorting to the same old cliches, particularly female characters who are sexually assaulted, however, quote, necessary to the plot or done away with, however, ingeniously. Um, I think this is really interesting. Um, we've, I think we've talked on the show. I know that we've joked about it a lot offline about, um, or not even joked, but commented about the frequency of missing girls and women in fiction these days. And that uh, we've had so many, we've seen, we've just seen so many titles about the missing girls and the dead girls and the missing girls who are dead and the girl on the train and, um, all of the, like, there's just a ton of titles that specifically say in the title that something bad happens to the girl or the woman. Last year, Emily St. John Mandel put the numbers together about the girl in the novel title and what happens to the girls and women in these, um, in the books that like, if it says girl, as opposed to man, bad things are likely to happen like 85% of the time or something like that. Um, so I think it's, I am here for this. Um, I wish that it were not just, for thrillers. Like thrillers do have this problem more than other, uh, more than any other genre, I believe where the plot, where rape and sexual assault are used as a plot device or a way to move the story forward. But I read a lot of snotty literary fiction that also uses um, gross things that happen to women, um, as just, you know, like given background of the story and, um, fiction that takes young men as its main characters often does this as well. Um, so I'd like to see it eventually branch out, but I think it's, the right time certainly for launching a book prize like this and really beyond the prize. I hope that this signifies the beginning of a movement and a public discussion about not using terrible things that happen to girls and women, particularly um, as plot devices. I think this is super interesting. Um, I'm, I'm excited to see that it exists. I've got questions that mm-hmm. are just kind of Jeff kind of questions as you can imagine <laughs> about like, so so let's say the the protagonist is a woman. Can can she be in danger of being murdered? And that counts. Oh, like do you know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. if she's about to get, like she's trying not to get murdered. I, she's technically not murdered, but it feels like that's kind of exploiting the same. I don't know cultural titillation somehow. Like is she is she trying not to get murdered? Is she can she be abused domestic? And I guess not beaten, but can she be beat up in a fight? You see what I'm getting at? Like, what's the mm-hmm. getting a woman or is and So if a man is murdered, that's fine for this prize, which I'm not saying that's wrong. That's fine. Um, 
I don't know. It just suddenly seemed weird to me that there's going to be some weird lines drawn, which is fine. They're all weird lines at all places at all times. But <laughs> it, I, my concern about this would be that, like, are women just taken out of the picture of a thriller, which are so tied up with either actual violence or, violence or the threat of violence? Um, it seems like maybe a blunt instrument for hmm. trying to do something by just sort of category like taking women off the it's kind of like what you hear some writers say like i'm just not going to write about women because i don't know how to write them well right like that's a, well i, I mean write. that kind it, of assumes it feels that, weird. Like, that a writer would care enough about winning this prize that they would take female characters no no but i mean in terms of like what's available um to be nominated mm. it's just i don't know it's interesting I, I could see the case either way like as long as they actually aren't beaten raped or murdered and it's just kind of that's that they escape, that they succeed in, you know, getting away from whatever or accomplishing their mission without ever this thing's Right. Happening. Like, can there be a sinister threat that's not followed yeah. through on or, or can there be nothing? And, you know, I think right. the fact that we even have these questions about it is a result of how intricately and intimately connected violence against women is to the notion of thrillers. Like if we're sitting here being like, how many thrillers does that exclude? If you can't have anything bad happen to women and we're thinking it excludes a lot of them, like this is a plot device that gets used over and over and over. Um, And so I I kind of don't care if it excluded a whole lot of of them. Like, Oh no, I don't care. I, I, I seriously don't care about that. I'm just more interested in like, say I'm in charge of administering this prize, uh, uh-huh. right? Like, you know, kind of the technical, the technical thing, because I guess. How do you the, advise the, the judges of the first year? Yeah. Right? right. Because it feels to me, it may, it may, um, it may follow the, the letter of the rule, but not the spirit of the rule. Mm-hmm. If the thriller is about a woman who's like being, well, I guess it says stalked. So maybe that would count for any sort of threatening behavior. You could throw it in with stalked. So, so it's it's trying to look at books and highlight books that invert or subvert that that mm-hmm. conventional plot line where maybe you have a woman detective investigating the murder of a bunch of guys, mm-hmm. right? Which that we kind of laugh at that or like it seems, I don't know, almost the uh, Mundus Inversus, The World Upside Down shows you the nature of the mm-hmm. problem. Yeah, they're, the they're only, like the only example, I don't read a lot of thrillers and so my sample set <clears> is definitely <throat> limited. Yeah, I, I don't think either. this is the only example that exists, but the only one that I can think of in recent years that is a like a bunch of women murdering men is out by Natsuo Carino. And even that mm. is a revenge thriller where the women are murdering men who have done terrible things to them already. Yeah, right. Um, and so it's, it is strange to imagine. I think it would be interesting to look at the top selling thrillers of the last year or two and how many of them would would even qualify for this award. Like, I wouldn't be shocked if I looked at the like top 20 thrillers of last year and all of them had something terrible happen to women. Like, I, Yeah, the, the over-under would be one half, <laughs> right? Yeah. I would say over half, probably. I would, I would guess. No, I mean one half of one book. Like if there's one, you win (laughs) or zero, depending on which way you take. It's price. Like the existence of one is the Mm -hmm. best. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I would be really surprised. Um, It's just mm -hmm. such a given part of the genre. It's a genre that's dominated by male writers and in which terrible things happen to girls and women. And that like, if this could be a brand new day, I'll just gather my wool for a minute. Like if this could be a brand Mm -hmm. new day where we start writing thrillers that have nothing to do with bad things happening to women, that would be excellent. I don't know. I mean, my experience with mysteries, and I don't know that this 
this doesn't actually explicitly talk about mysteries. I, I, my, my, my antenna for the difference between a mystery and a thriller is very bad, I should say out loud. Um, but say in Agatha Christie books, which I've read a bunch of them, there's a lot of them that, you know, they're about a man getting killed mm-hmm. and that's it. You know, there's not really anything else about it. So I wonder as a historical trend, I'd be curious to know as well. I mean, I don't feel great about genres that rely on violence as, you know, motivating plot in general. So I, you know, I guess if it's men getting beaten up and killed, that's better. I, I also to say that feels weird in some kind of way. You know, have you heard Jeff's rule for evaluating how good of a t- the best TV shows of all time? Have no. you heard, we talked about this? I don't think so. I'm a little bit afraid if, of what this is about. No, to it's, 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 if you if, if you're, if your TV show involves guns, you get a demerit. Ah, for the quality in all-time rankings, just because violent, just violence is being part of raises the stakes so immediately, it's almost like a cheat. Oh, we had so, this conversation about Breaking Bad, but I don't remember. Yeah, if we Breaking had it Bad. Yeah, Breaking Bad versus something like Mad Men, right? Which mm-hmm. or you know, pick, pick pick whatever prestige drama you want. Um, it's much harder and more interesting to have the stakes be emotional and psychological than they are about whether or not they're going to die. And I kind of feel the same way about thrillers. Like they're all, they all, the, 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 the meta trope they're all depending on is the violence or the threat of violence, right? Right. That the stakes um, are almost always death. They're, they're almost death. Like, you know, I don't know. So there's, there's that part of me that's, un, I've always been queasy myself, frankly, about reading even like an Agatha Christie mystery. It's like, what is, what am I, what am I, what's going on with me that I find this interesting? I'm not, I don't super (laughs) love that mirror, that mirror look. Um, That's a meta point, but I think this is very bold. I think it's really interesting. I'll be fascinated to see, A, if they do, are they going to do finalists? Like, I'd be curious to see all the finalists if there's more than one and who and who and what wins and how, you know, how this all plays out. Fascinating idea. I love these counterfactuals, these kinds Mm -hmm. of things. Um, What was that publisher? Or someone challenged a publisher. A publisher said they were going to just publish books by women one year. Oh yeah, we got the download. You remember? Did we ever find out? Like, oh, they did how it. That went? They I should look it. that up. I don't they did think it. we yeah. got. It wasn't. It wasn't like a mainstream. You know, you know it wasn't no, like five. No, no. Um, but they did it. I know that they completed it. I didn't see like sales numbers about how that year compared to their sales mm. in previous years. But they did do it. The other note I had for you on this is how about versions of this prize. In other genres, it doesn't have to be about violence about women, but like where you Ooh. take out a problematic big trope. Literary right? fiction where no one sleeps with their professor. I mean, you know, I mean, on that, <laughs> that that's a favorite of mine. Um, not, uh, I, I don't, I don't read too many genres to know the tropes of them, but like, I like that one. I like the literary fiction. Mm, where, actually, where, my, um, if, yeah, yeah. I know that, that would be your, that's one of your fiction Write us, write us, write it. Genre readers out there listening, write us your version of this prize for romance, for steampunk, Mm. for whatever else it might be. I'd love to hear what, yeah, um, by excising a a, a, a bad trope, a bad, you know, repeating feature, Mm -hmm. um, what, 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 what would it be? The prize for, you know, yeah, you know, mine would be. I'm trying to think of the um, non-explicit terminology, the magical lady parts. Yeah, I wondered about that. Where yeah. um, tortured young man like just can't get happy in life, or he can't finish that novel he's working on, or whatever. He's it's almost always that he can't finish the novel that he's working on. Like these mm-hmm. characters are always writers, and then he meets a woman. 
and has sex with her. And the magic of that unlocks all of his potential. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a great one. It's <laughs> classic. Um, yeah. Anyway, yeah. I, I think you could do like in romance, maybe it's something like, I'm so tired of, of, of books. And I don't know if it's romance would be especially bad. I'm just thinking so much of like nonviolent books depend that are plot driven depend upon a misunderstanding of some kind mm. like a plot that could be resolved with as uh, an honest email exchange right like that like that would i like that literary fiction that like <laughs> just talk to her for 30 minutes honestly and the whole book goes away <laughs> kind of like the old joke about seinfeld how many of seinfeld plots exist right. if there's a, you have a cell phone if, they have if, cell if two of the characters have a cell phone like half half the series is gone um but like actually telling someone what you think about something uh, would like half of literary fiction is basically gone uh, overnight. If literary so fiction that. characters just had to read Brene Brown. <laughs> yeah, right. That's right. That's right. If any of these characters were remotely self-aware, we have no book. And it's just people standing around. <laughs> literary characters go to therapy. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's so fine. It's true, though. There's some truth to that. Um, You want to hear about our next sponsor? sponsor. All right. Our next sponsor this week is Here We Lie by Paula Trike DeBoard. This is new from Park Row Books. Megan Mazeros is a girl from a modest Midwest background, and Lauren Mabry is the daughter of a senator from an esteemed New England family. They're complete opposites on paper, but they become roommates at a private women's college and forge a strong friendship. The summer before their senior year, Megan joins Lauren's family on their private island off the coast of Maine as a last hurrah before graduation but late one night something unspeakable tears their friendship apart many years later megan publicly comes forward about what happened revealing a horrible long buried truth Paula Trike DeBoard is known for delving deep into the emotional core of a story and developing complex and well-rounded characters. This story explores subject matter that's highly relevant today. Megan and Lauren struggle to understand each other and to define themselves as young women in a world where they both feel slightly off balance and often unheard. And in the end, it's an empowering message about finding the strength to come forward and speak out about difficult experiences. So again, the book is called Here We Lie. It's by Paula Trike DeBoard and it's out now from Park Row Books. You can find it wherever books are sold or check out the link in our show notes. Okay. Um, let's get this out of the way just because it's relevant. Um, I'm surprised you even put this in here, frankly. Should yeah, I be surprised just, you put it in there? I don't know. I, I think it's going to be a thing. Is it? Maybe. Well, we'll let the people decide. So former White House Press Secretary Sean Spicer is releasing a book in the summer about what his publisher described as his turbulent tenure with the Trump administration. I'm reading verbatim here from the Washington Post. The book titled The Briefing will be released on July 23rd, um, which bills itself as the country leading. Oh, this is their friends. Mm-hmm. How do you say this word? Regnery? Reg- Regnery. R-E-G. Regnery. These are the people that said they're not going to do um, NY Times, New York Times book selling, best of uh, best selling books reporting or whatever it is they threatened and no one cared about. <laughs> um, yeah. So he's going to set the record straight. And, uh, yeah, what he called a mass amount of incorrect and malicious attacks on the president. So this is not going to be a a book he could write about the truth or what we assume to be the truth. This is going to be a, a CYA mm-hmm. um, keep on the right side of the president kind of line. I yeah, could care less about this. I, this is going to be a disaster. This is embarrassment. Is. So yeah. on and so forth. 
it's going to be a disaster. That is the kind of thing it will be like uh, much fun was had on the, I think the contributor back channels about like what alternate titles of the book should have been. My favorite came from Maria Christina Garcia Lynch, who works with us. And she suggested people of the world, Spicer your life. (laughs) (laughs) Like the most fun we're going to have with this book is imagining what it should say. (sighs) Yeah. I don't know. Maybe it won't sell any copies and that will be satisfying. (laughs) It'll be like how, you know, we didn't talk about it last week, but Ivanka um, Trump, oh, Ivanka yeah. Trump's publisher is now like $220,000 in the hole um, on the mm-hmm. book that she put out last year about women who work because they were so clueless as to publish a book that positioned Ivanka Trump as the voice for working women and feminists. And may, like maybe that will happen to Sean Spicer also. Like if publishers start losing a lot of money publishing these things, that will feel like chickens coming home to roost. I'm not going to count like, those eggs yet, though. I feel like there's a lot of taste for books about Trump that are either from the left, perceived to be from the left, or let's just call it what it is, maybe objective, because just looking at this stuff objectively is a disaster. There's appetite for those books. I don't feel like there's an appetite for apologist books, puff books about mm-hmm. Trump. I, I think that's... I don't think Trump supporters are going to run out and buy this if, if you know, the reviews are that this is nothing but spin, right? Yeah. Then the people that came out to buy Fire and Fury are not going to come out and buy this book. There's no way. Yeah, I agree. Unless there's a whole chapter about what he was doing hiding in those bushes, like, I just don't care. I really want to know, like, you know, if I have, um, if Spicer and Truth Serum, well, there's a lot of questions, but I really want to know how that first press conference about the inauguration crowd sizes mm. went. I'd love to know. How, I assume like, it came from Trump himself, but there was any objection raised. Like, how did they think about it? Like, what are they doing it just to placate him or do they think it actually do work? Like, And also, why does he yeah. need to placate the president now? He got fired. So like, if he did want to write, he should just write I a tell He would sell so many more books. That's what I'm saying. I mean, he probably just signed an NDA. <laughs> right? I'm, I'm sure there's an, massive NDAs and things like that, but I, I, I agree. Like, I think we said this about Fire and Fury. I don't care. I mean, I care about Trump as the political figure and what he does. But as a human, I think I've got a bead on him. I want the mm-hmm. I want the details of how the sausage is made and how the White House works with that guy in the in the in the chair. Yeah, that's what's interesting to me. How is this happening? Like literally, how did they decide to get those pictures of the two crowd sizes and it's the tarp and the whatever and like all the the Orwellian stuff we talked about in that annot- mm-hmm. annotated episode at the top of like this is this is gaslighting. You know, that's what they're yeah. trying to gaslight us en masse about what we're seeing with our very own eyes. How did that go down? I think would be illuminated, but we're not going to get that. So no. I'm not interested, but it's happening. Yeah. Um, maybe like maybe a contributor will do, what was it when Amanda Deal like got drunk and read that New York Times romance column? Um, if, a, if one of our contributors wants to like play a I drinking like game like with the saying. Sean Spicer book, I'm, I'm here for that. <laughs> yeah. You know, this next story, we should have grouped with the tech stuff at the top, but I think it's worth mentioning here real quick that Mm -hmm. um, iBooks is being, Apple's iBooks is getting a bit of a makeover. And I think most people who know stuff think that Apple's iBooks is actually probably the number two seller of eBooks in North America. America. Mm -hmm. Part of it is a lot of people have uh, iPhones, iPads and iPhones, and you can buy eBooks through Apple's apps without having to do the whole crazy workaround you have to do for Kindles and stuff. Um, because of profit sharing and whatever else. It doesn't matter here. 
Um, working on a new design that will feature a simpler interface with a reading now section, which actually was always a problem. You'd open up iBooks mm-hmm. and go to your library and you'd be like, which of these books I was reading is just like a huge scroll of covers. So you can go to your reading now. You can jump into a couple different things. Audiobooks will get a dedicated tab, which is also excellent. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's probably uh, um, the most telling change because you'd have to go to your to iTunes to listen to audiobooks, which yeah. I guess technically you could understand, but also that's dumb at the same time. So there you go. Uh, we don't know if audiobooks is going to move to the iBook store, which they absolutely 1,000% should. Mm-hmm. They should come up with something else like that. I think I've wondered for a long time, why doesn't Apple have a subscription audiobook service built in that you can just sign up for right there? Wouldn't that be awesome? As it opposed to like what you have to do for Audible and you've got to go through the thing to pick your book. Through your, it just uh, Yeah, it just doesn't make sense that – Apple has one advantage on phones that Amazon really can't compete with. And a lot of us listen to our audiobooks on our phone, which is buying books, audiobooks directly on your device in app without having to go to your website or some other crazy cockamamie workflow. They, they haven't been exploiting it and they really should. They really should do it. And I hope this is a sign that they'll actually think about it from the user's point of view. It's like, hey, people buy audiobooks. I don't know if you know this. Maybe if you actually put them with your in your books app, people would buy them from you. Because I remember one day I was like, I think I was out of credits from Audible, and I was going to go buy an ebook. I was like, I don't want to throw more money at Audible. I want to try, you know, I want to buy it right now. I'm on my phone. I'm on the run. I don't want to have to go through the the cockamamie thing. And I couldn't find how to buy an audiobook from Apple. And it was only like weeks later that I realized I should have been checking iTunes. Which yeah, makes about as much. It just makes no sense. It's not intuitive at all. So, what do you think about this? Is probably also a nothing burger, but in a way, <laughs> could, it could since so many people already do use their iPhones, it could yeah. be actually matter more than the Kobo Walmart. Yeah. I think if one of the two stories matters, it's this one in the end that um, Apple already has a dedicated base of people that buy iBooks or iBooks, eBooks, whatever, um, that buy digital books through them and people who have bought audiobooks and they're just stored separately. I think making it easier. First of all, it's astonishing that there wasn't a reading now section like Mm -hmm. years ago. That's a basic part of having an e-reading app. Um, But I think making it easier for people to do all the things they want to do around books in one place can only help your business there. And if they were able to develop a subscription, uh, even if it's very similar to Audible, if they were, if they wanted to do, you know, pay 15 bucks a month to get one audiobook, I think there's a core audience there that would give it a shot. Mm -hmm. And and if it was price competitive, I would think about it just for the Mm -hmm. ease of like, when my credit comes available, and I'm on my phone, I've got to, I've got to get to my laptop and log well, on to sure. audible.com. You know, it's garbage. I hate and that. Audible did or, or did or is still doing some exclusive podcasts, you know, that aren't yep. published That's on right. iTunes. You have to listen to Audible to get them. There's an opportunity here for Apple to work with popular podcasters and e- either do like special features that are subscription based or become the exclusive distributor mm-hmm. of those podcasts to kind of do the same thing and keep people in that iTunes network. Even Stitcher now is doing um, exclusive podcast that you have to subscribe to Stitcher Premium to get. Like everybody is trying this, and Apple already has the bulk of the podcast listenership, so they could turn those folks, especially into audiobooks customers. You know, Apple has, and they're making a bunch of big deals for original video content. Um, mm. And we've seen Audible get into dedicated audio content, and it didn't occur to me till just now that 
I'm a little surprised that Apple hasn't made some big deals for dedicated audio content to be yeah, to, they can only listen to within the Apple Music or Apple Podcast app or wherever else, wherever place they're going to misplace you know, it, but it should be somewhere. Just, also, the number of podcasts that are sponsored by Audible, including oh. ours at some times, yeah. if all if Apple could get into that and have them be sponsored by the Apple Audiobooks app mm-hmm. um, or the subscription service or whatever, like uh, we've talked about how podcast listeners are low hanging fruit to become audiobook yeah. listeners and to consume media in that way. They're already used to listening to stuff. Mm-hmm. And there's a there's definitely a market there that Apple could get into. And I no. Clint and I were just looking at our stats for um, Riot New Media Group. That's mm. the book, right? Basic repair company. The, the clients that people are using to listen to the podcast that we do, it's like 60% Apple devices. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, they maybe maybe they think they've already got it. I mean, maybe that's it. People listen to podcasts on our phones and devices anyway. But uh, it's interesting that they could be doing that um, as a way to, for lock-in, as part of your mm-hmm. Apple Music subscription that you get, you know, the lore podcast or whatever, you know, some, maybe a dedicated Gimlet joint or something like that would be interesting for them to do because they've got money to throw at content. I'd, I'd be curious to see if the gold rush we see in literary adaptations for video content, if there is some sort of gold rush around audio IP. Oh, interesting. Um, because podcasts and audiobooks are growing markets. Um, we hear from people all the time, even, even people in our, our civilian lives are mm-hmm. listening to podcasts and audiobooks in ways they weren't even two or three years ago, I think. Um, so there's opportunity there to get on uh, in early on a major franchise. Um, we haven't seen them. It's weird. People thought after this first season of Serial came out that we we're going to see a wave of like extremely popular podcasts that that would bubble up into mainstream culture, really. And I don't think there's been another one. I think it's been, I think it's been Serial and then the NPR stuff. And Serial yeah. was even launched by NPR. Um, but there other than are, that, I don't think anything – is there anything else you could do like a sketch on Saturday Night Live about? Like that's always kind of my yeah, test for whether no. or not something's made it into the mainstream. You could have on Serial I think at its height. I think you could have had a, an a mm-hmm. SNL ca- sketch about that. I don't think there's been an, another one that you could have done the same Yeah, I, I think that that might have led to – and I would I haven't seen numbers on it so I'm guessing. But I think that the popularity of Serial and people getting into podcasts in order to – get in on this, like to jump on the cereal wagon might have led to those folks listening to other podcasts. But so many people were like, we're going to try to make the next cereal. We're going to try to make a podcast. True crime is like the biggest podcast category. There's like a lot of me too stuff. Yeah. And that breaks out. And so like the, it got very glutted. The pile of a sudden got a lot bigger Mm -hmm. and to become remarkable. Like now you have to be remarkable out of thousands of true crime podcasts instead of like a dozen, um, or at least a much higher number than you did when serial became a thing. So it's just, I think it's also just harder, but that's also one of those things of like when lightning has struck, it's typically not the best plan to try to make the lightning strike in the same place again. You know, so I, I know how the logic worked of we should all make true crime podcasts, but it's, it wasn't that the podcast that I hear the most about, and this is, I'm sure due to my social circles are the ones like pod save America and some of the constitutional law ones, the political stuff that's breaking out and that have, you know, younger and tech savvy hosts that like folks who came out of the Obama administration who have started Mm -hmm. podcasts, those kinds of things. But also none of those are as big as serial was the world of podcasts is just so much bigger. But Apple, I mean, they have an advantage that no one else has is they have the real estate. You open up your mm-hmm. podcast app, they could have, hey, try Apple's new podcast, whatever. Yeah. Like right there. Sign up. Mm-hmm. Try it. 
um, which is we found it's difficult to advertise podcasts. It's hard to get them in front of people. You know, the thing I say about podcasts is it's hard to get the fish, but once you get the fish, you get you, they'll stay on the line for a while. Mm-hmm. But getting yeah. them to try the show is very difficult. So, and, they, and that front end, that thin end of the wedge that they have, they could really use. Um, and sorting out where you listen to what kind of media Maybe it's something. I mean, that's part of the larger story we're mm-hmm. talking about with the iBooks um, app here. Oh, tell us about the last uh, sponsor, and we'll do a couple more. Our last sponsor after. this week. Here's a memorable title for you: "Playing Atari with Saddam Hussein." It's by Jennifer Roy with co-author Ali Fadil. At this, this is a novel based on true events that, at the start of 1991, 11 year old Ali Fadil was consumed by his love for soccer, video games, and American television shows. Then, on January 17th, Iraq's dictator Saddam Hussein went to war with. 34 nations led by the United States. Over the next 43 days, Ali and his family survived bombings, food shortages, and constant fear. He and his brothers played soccer on the abandoned streets of their Basra neighborhood, wondering if their father, who was a medic, would ever return home. Readers will experience the Gulf War through the eyes of an ordinary 11-year-old Iraqi boy in what is an accessible and timely novel. So again, Ali Fadil, whose story this is based on, he is a co-author of the book. He spent his childhood in Iraq, and less than 20 years after the Gulf War, he worked as an Arabic-to-English translator in the U.S. Department of Justice, where he came face-to-face with Saddam Hussein, who had ruined so many lives and took away his childhood. Um, The book focuses on one family and one ordinary boy to humanize war and to remind young readers that there are people, even kids just like them, in every country who shouldn't be held responsible for the actions of despots or dictators. And there's also a video game hook here for the younger readers that Ali and his brothers love to play video games and the juxtaposition of video game villains and real-life dictators is a kid-friendly and interesting way to experience a piece of recent history. So this is Playing Atari with Saddam Hussein. It's out now from Houghton Mifflin Kids, and you can find it wherever books are sold or at the link in our show notes. Let's get out of here on two good stories. All right. Or interesting stories that are that are maybe positive. Um, the first is Kwame Alexander, who you may know from his uh, hip-hop-inflected verse novel called The Crossover, about twin brothers who are stars of their junior high school basketball team, it came out five or six years ago, became a big hit is starting a new imprint called Versify um, with HMH, uh, Homer from the Harcourt, uh, for young r- readers. And he's looking for risky, unconventional books in sort of the broad umbrella of children's literature, all the way from sort of picture books to YA. Children's literature encompasses all of that. Um, his own story, I didn't know the story about the crossover, mm-hmm. but I, I heard about the book, but basically – he was turned down 22 times, wasn't having any luck. He was told there was no market for poetry-infused sports themes, children's books, because boys wouldn't read poetry and girls wouldn't read about sports, blah, blah, blah. He was getting, getting ready to self-publish it when HMH made him an offer. And then it, it sold 500,000 copies in print and digital, and then it won the Newberry in 2015. And so basically, he, he is taking that experience of people thinking there isn't a market for this stuff, but mm-hmm. there is – and saying, you know what? Let's do some of these books. <laughs> to the tune of half a million book sales. <laughs> half a million book sales. Um, so let's see. The first books, they're coming out 
there's a whole raft of them kind of all the way up and down from kids to, to young adult, from nonfiction to illustrated. You can find the link in the show notes there. I think a lot of interest, super interesting mm-hmm. titles. Yeah. Spring 2019 is when those are coming out. Is that the first one I didn't see mm-hmm. there? Um, they, the New York Times is an interesting job of connecting it to a couple other projects that aren't really like this, but are not completely different. Like the Rick Riordan presents mm-hmm. um, features middle grade books from around the world. Jay, uh, what's it? Jimmy Pat books. Uh, Jim, Jim, uh, Jim mm-hmm. Patterson's children's book Empire imprint, uh, which is in the last three years has released 48 books, sold more than 7 million copies. Um, interesting that mm-hmm. I, I'm not sure I've seen again, I'm not I'm, I'm, I'm a budding student of publishing history, but imprints around subject areas like this, I think is a new phenomenon. <laughs> Yeah, the closest example that that I can think of is that several romance publishers had dedicated at one time or another have had right, dedicated imprints right. for their diverse romances. Mm-hmm. And one of the major it was either I think it was a HarperCollins romance imprint was that was specifically stories about people of color um was closed last year and there was that was a big deal that it was closed. So those like the siloing of stories for the like, well, we're going to make one imprint for people of color. That seems to be on the downturn, which I think is good. Um, and if it means integrating more books by and about right. people of color into all of the aspects of publishing. Um, but this focus specifically on creating um, creating and telling diverse stories for kids, um, it, I think is new. And it's exciting to, it's really exciting to see that, especially with the sales numbers behind it. Like this is a confluence of a lot of things. It's We've seen the We Need Diverse Books movement. We've seen the last few years of the um, Children's Book Council gathering and publishing data about how few books for kids are by or about Mm -hmm. people of color. It's like 3%. It's abysmal every time we talk about it. Um, And there's some real movement there. And then you combine that with someone sells 500,000 copies of a book that no one thought there was a market for. And now you have something really interesting happening. Yeah, and I guess this is the kind of institutional play that you and I have both talked about as we talk about the the Vita stats and uh, you know the we need diverse books. You need institutional locuses of influence in publishing houses mm-hmm. to make more books. Um, that has to be the end result of all of I think has to be the end result of all the talk, all of the counting, all of the whatever. All the effort needs to be where there's more capacity in publishing houses to make different kinds of books. And mm-hmm. this is a sign that something, some of it has worked. Um, you hope that it doesn't just move the titles into one imprint that actually expands the number of titles. Um, but we'll find out. But yeah. this is, I mean, this is exactly the kind of endpoint change you want to see, I think, mm-hmm. like this. Um, this is just because technology is cool. This is what we're doing. It's not, it's mm-hmm. sort of about books, sort of not. Um, but the Boston Public Library launched a crowdsourced project to transcribe 40,000 documents from its anti-slavery collection. Basically, they've got all of these documents. They've now been digitized, but they need to be converted into a way that can be um, uh, into machine-readable text so it can become searchable. Mm-hmm. 
and so much of it is stuff that a machine can't see or do very well. That, you know, it's like it's like it's handwriting, handwriting, and capture. It's like all the stuff you see in a captcha, like from the side of a sign, like it's mm-hmm. somewhere in, uh, <laughs> you know, so, so somewhere in Des Moines. Like uh, this is it's what date is this? Um, who is this name? All kinds of stuff. Um, so you can get involved if you want. You can create an account and transcribing at the anti-slavery collection site today. Um, the combined efforts of everyone willing to transcribe a few documents, Will and Blake's word, words, this is, um, let's see, what's this guy's name? Uh, I lost his name. Blake. Tom. Tom Blake, who's director of the Boston Public Library. He said, we don't need that many people to do that many. But there's a lot. And uh, this is cool. This is great. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've always wondered all. about this stuff. Like, you know, Google has had the, like, the Scan Everything project. Yeah. You know, I've done very little. I've done some, but very light archival work myself um, back when I used to, like, research real things. Um, and there, I was like, this, there's no way this could be OCR'd. It's, mm-hmm. it's, all, it's all faded, and you get the bleed from one side of the page bleeding over to the other side of the page. And, uh, I mean, I know machine learning is getting really good, but stuff that would just be impossible yeah. to know. And idiosyncratic handwriting that you have to interpret and know by context and then figure out, oh, that's an F, not an S, or it could be either. Um, really interesting to see that there's the good old good old human eyeballs still have mm-hmm. some work to do. Yeah, I was looking at this and thinking about, like, I would love either a documentary about the people who participate in projects like these, because I always think they're cool, but I'm also not super likely to ever actually participate yeah. in this. Um, I would love to. So better people about, than us is what you're saying. Yeah, well, yes. Who are the better that's people we'll than us That's what we'll call the documentary, there. better people than us. Um, or like it's, it's a make, makes for an interesting like prompt for a collection of short stories, like 10 linked stories in which each person is working on this project. Can't you see like retired Jeff? This is a rabbit hole I would fall down into. <laughs> There's a real good chance that in 40 years, you, I'm going to be are... like pecking away at like some art, like the letters of Mary Shelley's chef to her uh, butler. It's like gonna all, be transcribing the things, them. all the facts that we can't shoehorn into an annotated episode leads yeah. to a rabbit hole of <laughs> right. like a very obscure literary historian-ness. <laughs> it's like me unrolling papyrus with like a, a pith helmet on. Doesn't sound too bad. I kind of like it. Some people <laughs> go to the say. beach. Some people go to the beach. I go to a musty basement <laughs> with bibliographic data. Look, that's just the kind of party animal you are. You know, I, I won't deny it. I'm proud. I'm okay. <laughs> that's our show. We'll talk to you guys next week. Oh, write us about um, – we wanted you to write about – oh, a rabbit rabbit. We wanted <laughs> to know that. Did we, did we have some, something else? Oh, your um, alternate prizes for taking tropes out of uh, genre stuff. Yes, I want to know yeah, all about like, those. What's your version of the staunch prize for sci-fi or fantasy or whatever else it might be? I'd like to hear that. What would you call Sean Spicer's novel? Novel, memoir, whatever. You know, I'm not – I don't have – I'm day-quilled up. I'm not sharp. I don't have a good one. I, I hate that. Save I, the, the puns whole thing for another is, day. Jeff, really it's right. Some, it's obvious. It's too spicy. Yeah, but see, the thing is, I need some fellow feeling to really have a good pun name. Like, I need to feel mm. some affinity for it. I've got nothing but bile here, and bile does not good wordplay make. That's not how it works. We'll just have to leave it to someone else, to better people yeah. than we. Better people than we. All right, talk to you guys later. Have a good one. <laughs>